Hello, I'm Joaquin Ruiz, Dean of the University of Arizona College of Science. Please stay tuned for a special presentation of Arizona Science featuring speakers from the 2016 University of Arizona College of Science lecture series, Earth Transformed. For six weeks earlier this year, Earth Transformed, the 2016 University of Arizona College of Science lecture series, explored climate change and its impacts. No longer merely abstract projections of the future, instead they are ongoing and growing challenges for both humans and many of the natural systems upon which we depend. Globally, changes in the oceans, ice sheets, and atmosphere provide clear fingerprints of the human causes, but also important lessons for society to learn as we seek solutions. Today we present a special one-hour conversation featuring speakers from the Arizona series. I'm Joaquin Ruiz, Dean of the University of Arizona College of Science, and I'll be moderating today's discussion. Joining me are Joellen Russell, Associate Professor of Geosciences, Russell Monson, Louise Foucault Marshall, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the Laboratory of Treating Research, Casey Ernst, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics of the College of Public Health, Kim Ogden, Professor Chemical and Environmental Engineering, College of Engineering, and Jonathan Overpeck, Thomas R. Brown, Distinguished Professor and Regents Professor, Department of Geosciences and Atmospheric Sciences, College of Science, and Co-Director of the Institute of the Environment. All of our panelists are distinguished faculty here at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Well, Joellen, let's start with you. You were the first speaker, and you uh, described uh, beautifully the role of the oceans in uh, climate change. Could you just remind us all of the, the fundamentals of why the oceans are so critical to the whole problem? Sure, Joaquin. It's my favorite subject. I'd be happy to. Uh, so the oceans play two big roles in climate. They uh, are taking up a huge amount of heat. Um, so the energy imbalance total that we see at the top of the atmosphere, meaning the difference between what comes in from the sun and what goes back out, is actually growing because of all the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So some of that imbalance, in fact, 93% of it is going into the ocean. The 2 to 3% that we actually see in the warming of the atmosphere is a very small fraction. So most people, when they talk about global warming, Warming, think they're really talking about surface air temperature, but global warming is really the full Earth system, all of it together. And then, of course, there's the second role the ocean plays, which is in taking up carbon. And it takes up about a quarter of all the carbon that we emit goes right into the ocean, um, reducing the amount uh, left in the atmosphere to make us hotter. Jonathan, you took a little uh, another angle on it, and that's how uh, the ocean uh, is increasing in its elevation. Um, tell us more about that, because just today in the news, Miami was describing how the higher edges of it, whatever those may be, are becoming prime real estate. Yeah, and the mayor of Miami is really upset that politicians aren't taking climate change seriously because it's going to reduce the amount of real estate in southern Florida pretty quickly. Um, the sea level rise that we're seeing around the globe is primarily caused by this warming of the ocean that Joellen's talking about. And increasingly, we're seeing a component that's due to the melting of glaciers all around the world, and even the large polar ice sheets, Greenland and Antarctica. And what's scary, uh, particularly uh, to me, is that these ice sheets are seemingly uh, losing mass at an ever-accelerating rate. And that could spell many, many meters and many, many feet of uh, future sea level rise that we are committing to with our warming of the atmosphere and the ocean. 
Yeah, one thing that you said during your presentation and that Joellen said and just sort of scared the dickens out of me actually was that all the sea level elevation that we see today actually has nothing to do with the melting of, the, of, of any ice still. It's just sort of heating up of the ocean and increasing its volume. So people should recognize that it's going, it's, you know, the volume is going up just because of the heating and in the future it's going to keep heating as well as the water coming from ice. Yeah, but nonetheless, we're seeing an acceleration of sea level rise, and it'll just probably accelerate more and more as that ice kicks in fully. Kim, what do you have to say about trying to ameliorate all these all these issues? What What's your take? Well, I uh, one of the things I did mention about the ocean is I, I think I brought up that um, pumping more CO2 down into the bottom of the ocean is um, probably not a really good idea. Um, especially with all the mixing and the rest of it. And so people who are thinking that's a solution, I is just, it didn't do it for me. Um, and I, I hope my colleagues would agree. Totally <laughs> I, agree. I absolutely agree. The, the, the thing I was talking about with the extra mixing in the Southern Ocean, that stuff will come back much more quickly. We used to think that it would take a thousand years to fully mix the ocean. And now for at least most of the ocean, it's really more like 200 years or even less. So Anything we put down there would just be coming right back up. And so. meanwhile, you're also acidifying the ocean. And more, we're, we're yeah. seeing that everywhere. And if you want to put more carbon in there, we're going to acidify it more. And it's going to affect the food chain and a whole lot else. Yeah, they're t- talking about that they thought that they could just put it deep enough that it just kind of stays in a liquid phase and not go up. But so we need I just technologies have some, We need other technologies instead. Right? emit all the CO2 in the first <laughs> right, place. Right, yeah, Ooh. no, I agree that it's it, our better solution is... Um, to not admit it. They just had in the paper, which was, a, well, no, it, was, it wasn't in a paper. It was something I read that came across the internet that someone has a new zero admission power plant. I saw that. I yeah. wanted to ask you about that. Well, but it's it, nothing zero admission, okay? Carbon comes in, <laughs> carbon has to go out, right? So it was. it's a little disconcerting. They're just kind of reusing it. So they're going to take carbon in, and then they're going to use like a gas turbine. So they're. Gonna, I think they're taking the stuff out of the top of the power plant and putting it through a gas turbine, but it's still going someplace. The CO2 is still there. And then they said they would put it underground for um, secondary or tertiary oil recovery. So that's what they're really doing. So they're, they're just revert, you know, um, inverting. um, What do I want to say? They're kind of taking it, not out of stack. They're putting it through a turbine, but they still have made CO2. So it's a little, a little not totally honest, I think, when I saw that article. You know, the big thing, though, <laughs> I read there was that it's um, this new technique will use a lot less energy Yeah. Um, to sequester the carbon. So I think that, yeah, that's one of the key things is that doing it this way, it may not, like, increase things 20% or whatever. It could maybe um, decrease the, I mean, keep things a little closer to what we're used to now for making power so that would be good but it didn't cost as much but will industry embrace this so far it seems like industry hasn't embraced trying to burn fossil fuel with fewer emissions Um, they've been kind of fighting it politically instead of embracing it i think that's why solar and wind are kind of taken off because well it's hard to compete with 30 bucks a barrel right but at the same time i mean it's amazing (laughs) this will be the first year that the u.s deploys more utility scale solar than any other source of power. I saw that. And China is doubling the solar uh, build out that we're we're going through. So it's a real change all while the price of oil is so low and and gas. And I I can only imagine it's partly because 
everyone agrees that we have to do this, but it's also everyone knows the price of oil will probably skyrocket again before long. Well, the uh, the and, thi- and gas with it. Well, the the thing that I think is is pretty much on its way out is coal. Uh, I mean, you know, there are stranded assets, so so uh, companies can't just leave them there without trying to figure out what to do with that. But as we move into natural uh, into renewables. I think you're going to see more and more of these gas turbines because you have to turn them back. I mean, you actually have to manage the grid. So as long as we have a grid the way we have it, you need to pump. You need to turn on and off uh, electrical current as as clouds come in and whatnot. So there's a very interesting uh, things going on actually at utility scale uh, with uh, going to smaller plants that are gas, which of course emit less CO2 than coal. Uh, to manage the grid. It's going to be an interesting transition. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of people are already doing it. Right. And then people are thinking about ways to actually use bioremediation types of things and grow plants in, on old coal plates and stuff oh, to, to try to clean it up and clean up the coal areas with plants. But the fact that we're actually um, roughly the U.S. is 10% off their peak emissions now while still growing the economy is – I didn't know that I would see it in my lifetime, and yet it's already occurred and, and is ongoing. I'm, I'm really excited. That's a huge point. You know, we now have great evidence that states can do it, and the, the biggest economy of the world can do it. We can grow the economy while we build out renewable energy and reduce our emissions at the same time. So, Russ, uh, somebody mentioned plants. <laughs> so... Um, you, uh, your presentation was all about the ecosystems, and uh, in particular, it was an elegant way that you described uh, the importance of water at the right time to keep our forests uh, healthy. Uh, remind us again the, the, what you have been observing and during your career, actually, with forests around the West. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting uh, to be this far into a career. Most of us around the table are probably in the same place. When we started uh, initially talking about climate change 15, 20 years ago, uh, I think as Jonathan said in his talk, it was way in the future. And most of us have now lived through the transition of, of recognizing that it's here now. And, and nothing is nothing sort of... Uh, uh, amplifies that point more than what we've seen in terms of changes in the forests and the in the terrestrial ecosystems of tropical forests and, and temperate forests I've spent most of my career studying temperate forests and we always see uh, stresses to those forests we see insect outbreaks uh, that that tend to be uh, local to regional uh, we see uh, stresses from human uh, exploitation of forests in terms of, of timber harvests and, and things like that but uh, the, over the last decade, we've seen changes in, in some of these forest ecosystems that are just unprecedented in the last 30, 40 years we've been observing them. And, and one of the, uh, uh, the, the big changes we've seen that I tried to highlight in, in my talk is the, the recent outbreak of bark beetles that we've seen in a lot of the temperate forests that uh, started about a decade ago in Canada and have moved uh, southward. Uh, and it's not always the same beetles. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the forests that have been killed in New Mexico, uh, pinyon pine forests, uh, it's a different type of beetle than have been killing the lodgepole pine forests. But all of these insects are um, <clears throat> seem to be impacting forests a lot more. And we think it has to do with changes in the climate. One of the interesting things that uh, have, has come out in the 
a case of the lodgepole pine forest in, in the Rocky Mountains is that the, um, the mountain pine beetle that's killing those forests normally has one generation a year. And uh, because the winters have gotten warmer over the last decade, uh, scientists have observed that they've switched now to two generations a year. And so they're able to, because of the warmer winter, get started much earlier in the spring and actually go through then two life cycles in a single season, which just uh, greatly increases their ability to expand and, and, ta and take over a lot more real estate. And uh, so, th so the coupling between the changes in the climate and the, and the sort of disturbance impacts that used to be just natural isolated disturbances has now uh, seems to have been enabling this, <coughs> this broad-scale explosion of the disturbance over the landscapes. So in, in um, Kim is, has been talking about, and she'll I'll ask her a few questions about technology to try to ameliorate uh, global climate change, but is there, is there anything uh, that the um, forestry community or the ag community is doing to try to try to deal with it? I don't know, growing, planting more trees, or is there is there any thought about how to deal with it, or is it just a matter of watching the whole thing collapse? <laughs> Well, it happened so quickly. Uh, with, I mean, within a decade, we've lost a significant fraction of forests, and, and it, it, it was moving so quickly and, and happening so quickly that people were just sort of caught flat-footed. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people thinking about it now. Uh, as with a lot of these climate change stories, the problem is the pace at which they unfold, and, and it sort of leaves us really... Uh, you know, sprinting to try to figure out how to how to get ahead of it, and um, and that's that's a classic case of that is what happened with the with the disturbances in the forests. Uh, we just we couldn't come up with solutions fast enough, and we couldn't come up with solutions that we didn't have the time to test different solutions and see what the what the most optimal solution might be. So people have thought about uh, thinning forests. Uh, <clears throat> Which, 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 which is a two-edged sword. Of course, if you thin the forest, you're taking out trees, you know, by harvest rather than by death by beetle. The net result is the same. You're taking out a lot of trees, and whether that's optimal or not, we really haven't had time to, to judge that. So, the bottom line is no. There really hasn't been an effective strategy. Now, now the the most recent beetle outbreak that I talked about in my lecture has sort of abated now, and over just the last three years or so, it seems to have slowed its spread. Uh, immensely, and we don't know why that is either. I guess people are thinking about that too. It, 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 there's been a couple of years with a little bit of more snow in the in the Rockies, for instance. Maybe that has something to do with it. But uh, there's a lot of mysteries there to, to figure out, and usually it, you know, we're trying to do it under under fairly constrained time scale. That's really interesting. And let me just ask you a loaded question: Is there any um, have have you folks thought about like GMO trees, uh, something that will basically deal with these beetles uh, in different ways that naturally occurring. Well, certainly people have thought about that. It's sort of a loaded strategy, though. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of resistance, I think, publicly to, uh, to um, altering things to that extent. But there, there are people trying to figure out which tree. Not every tree is killed in a forest when, for instance, these insects break out. So there is some natural resistance there, and there are a lot of forestry uh, researchers trying to figure out what that resistance is composed of and then try to figure out if we can enhance those traits either through genetic modification or through conventional breeding techniques. 
there seem to be certain chemical composition of the sap, for instance, in a lot of these pine trees that may make certain uh, uh, certain genetic types more resistant than others. And so there's a lot of thought going into that. Uh, again, it's just a matter of time. We, we, maybe we have a little time now that things sort of seem to have slowed down, but um, uh, we just have to see going forward. Still, still though, there's a, it really, your, res, your lecture really resonated with my whole extended family now who all across the West watch this because they're grieving. They're grieving over these forests. There's not a single one of them who hasn't had to take that drive up into the mountains to get to the cabin, to get to the campsite and just gone, what is going on here to our forest? You're, you know, the ocean smotions, they, they loved your lecture because, well, there isn't necessarily huge hope unless we you know, take action. This was pretty, pretty riveting stuff. Amazing. Yeah. And, and it's you, have going to, on. you have to add to it the fires, right? Which also uh, are somehow, well, the fires are complicated too, but there are more fires now than there used to be. And, uh, and they're huge fires that just take off. But in Russ's lecture, seeing the rust yeah. up, yeah. we've all seen it. Yeah. If you live in the West, you have seen this and you've been devastated just like everybody else. Yeah, and Peck uh, or or uh, Joellen, what's what's the story with uh, El Nino? Is it pooping out, or are we? Is it going to continue going? Uh, where where are we? Because El Nino, El Weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, hoping. You know, we're getting some good storms now in California, and you know, it, it isn't over yet. Uh, so maybe we'll still get some good snowpack. If we don't, it's going to look pretty darn bad at the end of the season. Low snowpack will be low flows in the rivers and drought will intensify. We, the last thing we really expected with an El Nino is the droughts would get worse. Um, but certainly in California, it's helping. Well, it's an odd El Nino. It um, is odd. Even, even compared to the odd El Ninos we've been having over the last 15 years, this is a very odd El Nino. And it's something we're really thinking hard about because the reason it's so odd is that there was not just the sea surface temperature big slosh anomaly on, in the tropics, which we always expect with an El Nino. There was also a huge warm temperature anomaly in the North Pacific. And this meant that w the sort of pattern of winds that we usually expect during an El Nino just didn't pan out the way it would normally and big anomalously warm conditions off the equator are are actually what we expect with global warming wow very interesting one of these days uh, we'll have a whole lecture on el nino which i'm sure that most of this i i don't understand very well and i'm sure that everybody that's listening to us isn't does, does not understand them very well either okay casey you talked about viruses and uh, mosquitoes as vectors of uh, diseases. My understanding from your lecture was that uh, a great component of the movement of these vectors is actually by transportation. But uh, can you tease out or uh, global climate issues on the, on, on the whole problem or or is it swamped by just transportation well I think that there's you know it's a, it's a complex dynamic and certainly transportation is one of the most rapid ways you can get a vector introduced into a new location um, but climate change is certainly going to sort of allow the edges and the margins of places so particularly we've seen some increasing elevations of where we are finding mosquito vectors in particular um, so they're creeping up 
into higher elevations than they were in the past. And then also as you have conditions that are sort of um, expanding northwards to, to make it a little more sort of what we would call sort of the, the sweet spot for the vector in terms of the temperature and humidity conditions that they have. Those areas that are right now marginal are seeing some potential expansion um, sort of in the, in the northward movement as well. So while it is very difficult to disentangle, there are, and you really need long-term good data, which is something that when I first started my career in this was, was quite frankly quite lacking, um, particularly in health outcomes as well as in vector surveillance data, just finding really robust long-term data sets to look at that carefully and closely is extremely difficult. It's getting better now, um, and so I think that there's a lot, been a lot of investment in trying to get these long-term data sets where we can do some of this disentangling of climate effects and globalization effects that are outside of sort of the, the climate change. But, but we're, still, we're still in the understanding process. The elevation issue hits, uh, I remember when I was growing up in Mexico City, which is 7,000 feet elevation, uh, there were no mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Basically, if, I mean, you drive to Acapulco and you'd get bitten by everything, but then you drive back, even if there was some, some kind of epidemic of anything, dengue or whatever, there were no mosquitoes in Mexico City or in most of the big cities like uh, Puebla and Cuernavaca, which are pretty high too, they're about 5,000 feet. But that's changing. So the elevation business is, is a very interesting one that that clearly has to do with just warming and just moving up the, the life zone, I guess, of mosquitoes. Right. So that, that is actually true. You know, and in, and in the malaria work that I presented that um, in the talk, one of the things that they showed was that in warmer years, you would have cases that were on average at higher elevations. So it's not just sort of a, a global, it's moving upward and, and, and it's continuing on that path, but you have that interannual variability that allows some years for it to reach really high places and some years where it's, where it's still at the lower my guess is that in places like Africa, where uh, you know where malaria is, is a real problem, uh, that will become a problem. Just the elevation business, right? Because it'll start hitting towns that before weren't hit, and these people will have even less defenses for uh, the diseases. Hmm, not good. Well, we're you know we're all in your hands, Kim. It's, we're going to have to, in addition to not uh, sending all kinds here. of fumes, <laughs> it, it, I, I don't see any way but uh, engineering ourselves out of this mess, uh, either through s- creating new ways of storing and producing energy uh, or, or actually trying to get rid of some, some of the CO2 we have. What's, uh, what's your view? I mean, how far are we, are we from making big, breakthroughs required for a transformational change? There are quite a few technologies out there to do things, and people are continuing to work on them. So there are other, the you know, the Department of Energy funds quite a few things. Um, one person, after I put my talk together, sent me all this information about a, a fuel cell that you can take carbon dioxide from the top of a power plant and put it into a fuel cell and use it that way or whatever. So there's always these really new cool ideas. Um, I think part of the issue is, you know, we have to make sure that we continue to fund these things. You know, it's it's a little bit comes down to our government and other things wanting to fund the technology changes and um, implementations. And 
it is a little political in that way and because people like to do what they used to do right it's easy to run your power plant the way it's always been run and we're always really happy when you know people do change them when you change from coal to natural gas that's a start you know all those kinds of things so I think a lot of them are there. I think it's just right now the cost implementation. At some point, we have to get to a point of what are we going to pay to implement all of these different types of technologies. And it is a lot of engineers doing it, but it they're really like, uh, you know, I guess the new buzzword is transdisciplinary research or whatever. But it's not just like one person, right? Like, so I have to have scientists that help me understand algal biology that work with me. And then if you want to do new solar things or something, then you need, you know, solar reactors that are self-powered things to get them off the grid. Then I need optical science people and electrical engineers. And, you know, it's just, it's not just one group of people. And then the whole time, um, other things we're trying to work on is, you know, work with the social scientists and um, the government and policy people to try to understand those mechanisms and which or what point and will people start to say, okay, I'll pay more for this. And so you need the social scientist as well to help, you know, do the surveys and see what those touch points are and things like that so that we can start to, as a team of scientists, technologists, and, you know, behavioral science people to implement these changes because it's going to take it all because it's never going to be, we're going to have to pay for it at some point. So the question is, when are we going to pay for it? Um, and how much are we going to pay for it? And or how bad are we going to let it get before we start to pay for it? You know, like all of those things, you know, because even like reforesting and doing forest things, you have to pay for it, right? Someone has to go put in new trees to get rid of the bark beetles and so, you know, that or once they're dead or, you know, so it, we just have to decide when are we going to actually do that. And it, it takes teams like even all the people in this room right here to kind of work together to figure that out. One of the things that um, <clears throat> I was really interested in in your talk, Jonathan, was uh, the the accelerated pace that we seem to be seeing in private investment and, and private companies. You, you mentioned Tesla and some of the battery uh, research that, that uh, again, is so dependent on initially on, on uh, you know, government support for the, the basic research, but then ultimately depends on investors picking up on this stuff and starting to realize that it's the wave of the future. And, and I think as you uh, so, so well put in your lecture that recognizing that the fossil fuels is the way of the past. And that's, we seem to be at a real exciting point right now. I mean, things really seem to be flipping uh, driven by natural market forces a lot more than they were in the past. And I just, I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, in Paris, the countries of the world got together and said, we got to do this, just about every country. And then they went back home and they started passing laws, both to figure out, you know, to enable adapting to the change we're going to get no matter what, but also to reduce the warming and other associated climate changes. And, uh, the business community has responded to that. Unfortunately, so is the fossil fuel and other special interests that are fighting it tooth and nail, and that's what we see in the political debates. But if you get outside the political debates, it seems like everybody's on board, and we're moving, we're moving out of the fossil fuel era. I saw this amazing talk by Walter Monk at the Ocean Sciences meeting just a couple of weeks ago, and he, of course, was the oceanographer who Eisenhower asked to do the forecast to figure out whether or not to launch on D-Day because the waves were high and the weather was bad and they didn't know if they could get the boats in close enough without people drowning. And, of course, we almost 
it was almost too much. And what he said was that the challenge for this century is climate change, the way that World War II was their challenge, the one that he met. He's 98 years old, and he's standing up there, and he, he rallied them. He said, hold the line. He said, the peop- you know, we did it once. We can do it again. We, we will meet the challenge. And, and I believe him, and I, I, I have great hope and faith in the American people that they will make wise decisions as these changes are accelerating. Yeah. And isn't it remarkable, too, uh, something that always uh, captures my imagination is how we hear so much of countries in conflict with each other. And here's a case where all the countries of the world came together, all the powerful countries, all the emitting countries, all the poor countries, and they agreed to work on something together. That's pretty amazing. Yep, it is. And we should really encourage that. I think it says a lot, too, that that people like us who see the worst part of climate change are optimistic. And we all had some optimism in our talks that, you know, I think it's amazing that we're able to, at, at this point in time, say we're optimistic about getting out of this. Though we recognize the incredible damage that's been done, there there do seem to be some glimmers of light forward if we can just sort of get mobilized around them and but it seems to be moving a little bit in that direction so there's there's room for some optimism well i hate to stop uh, this interesting conversation but we're going to take a short break now Uh, we'll be right back with more of our special presentation of arizona science featuring speakers from the 2016 university of arizona college of science lecture series earth transformed Welcome back to a special presentation of Arizona Science, featuring speakers from the 2016 University of Arizona College of Science Lecture Series, Earth Transformed. Well, in the few minutes that uh, we took a break, uh, we're all here on the campus of the University of Arizona sort of laughing about the mosquitoes that we all have in our rooms. Uh, Big challenge. Before I ask you, Casey, a little bit more about mosquitoes and actually about DDT, I just I heard an amazing presentation going back to Joellen that she heard a presentation as well from uh, somebody that was dealing with Eisenhower's uh, Walter Monk. I heard a presentation from one of my favorite geophysicists. His name is uh, Henry Pollock, and he was describing an enormous amount of optimism uh, for the future, not in the economic way, but he, he's convinced, and, uh, and he convinced me, that we are indeed in a tipping point in carbon uh, economy. And he made some really interesting observations. The first one was that, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is now uh, selling its oil company. Uh, that's number one. Number two, that uh, when in, in history have you actually had the price of oil go down the floor when you have a war in the Middle East? Uh, which is a very interesting point. He also pointed out what everybody has been saying here, that now the, uh, the big guns in, uh, with money are putting a lot of money into uh, technologies. They're betting on the future in ways that hadn't been bet before. 
And changes in the end, it doesn't matter what politics do or don't do, uh, when the market is ripe, things can happen very quickly. And the argument then is that markets are ripe, and that's why you know, Fidelity Mutual Funds and whatnot are pumping money into, into these, these uh, nascent technologies. So that indeed is 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 very interesting way of thinking about it. There's an interesting uh, op-ed piece that came out in the New York Times a, f- a while back by Gore and Blood, which is sort of a bad combination of names, but uh, arguing that the reason that oil is so cheap now and that everybody's pumping oil like crazy is because they're worried that oil is not going to be worth anything in 10 years. So the whole issue of uh, stranded assets and that whatever you can get out of oil today at 30 or $40, it'll be more than you'll get in the future. That may be true, but anyway, people are now beginning to sort of wonder about all these economic sort of observations and what they mean because they're just like global climate change, they're sort of weird. Anyway, um, tell me, uh, Casey, um, we were talking about DDT as we were sort of sitting here uh, because we were all chuckling about the mosquitoes in our rooms. DDT, what can you tell us about that? Is it coming back? Is it a good idea? Well, I think it's, you know, it's a it's certainly a one solution that people use, particularly for malaria uh, prevention and control. They, it's still licensed for use in sub-Saharan Africa to prevent malaria. And when it's done properly, you know, the way DDT was used in, in historically was that it was blanketed everywhere, inside, outside. It was held, you know, taken in planes across very large areas. And that I don't think will ever come back. Um, I think judicious use inside homes for indoor residual spray might be um, worth exploring in some areas where resources are extremely limited and there are not a lot of options for for vector control. Um, But there are a lot of new insecticides that are being developed that are safer and better for public health. Um, And there's always ones that are coming down the pipeline and that can be explored. And there are new technologies like the use of genetically modified mosquitoes for prevention and control. There's also people who are exploring Wolbachia as a um, natural sort of control that shortens the lifespan of mosquitoes. So there are options besides just blankets of, of insecticide that are, that are being developed. My understanding, and, and you and, and, and Russell here can tell me if I'm wrong, that DDT is, is known to be horrible for uh, birds. But it's not clear that it's bad for humans, or is it? So yes, it, it, that's what, you know one of the 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 significant effects of DDT is that it makes the shells fragile of of songbirds, and so the songbird populations decline. Um, in terms of human health, there's not. I mean, if you get an acute exposure of a, a massive dose, it can certainly cause cause problems. There's not a lot of studies that have looked at the long term effects of DDT exposure on on sort of um, human populations. There are some. Um, studies that show that there might be increasing risk of, of certain um, health, health impacts, but it's not, it's not a significant health uh, problem for, for people, at least in the limited studies that are there at this time. Yeah, well, one of the things that these lecture series are, are, are I think, important is that sometimes you get into these, uh, these complete misunderstandings of what really is the issue. I mean, I was convinced that DDT was was just terrible for humans until about a week ago when somebody pointed out there's really no evidence for that. It's really the birds that uh, everybody stopped using DDT for in particular. Good. Excellent. 
Uh, Peck, Jonathan, we call him Peck here at the University of Arizona. Uh, Jonathan, um, you, you, your talk uh, really dealt a lot with, with uh, where we live and the Colorado River. So it seems to me that, uh, and you made it pretty clear that even though it may rain a lot this year, the, um, the fate of the Colorado River is sort of, it's, it's, it's tough. Any views about policies of water? I know that you worry about that as well. You're not an attorney, but you worry about uh, policies of the use of water. Where does that fit into all of this? Well, I think in the Southwest, in particular with respect to the Colorado River, but I think other water sources too, uh, there's a lot of serious work going on by all sorts of people in society, not just the lawyers, but the water managers, the communities, the people who run communities, and citizens on how we can get by with less water. In times of shortage, what can we do? How can we plan for less water? What I think is missing is a sense of how serious the shortages could quickly become. Um, we've been in a drought essentially in the Colorado River since uh, 2000, since the beginning of this century. And on average, over that 16-year period, the um, flows in the Colorado have been 19% below normal. And we think that's largely uh, due not to declines in precipitation, mostly snow in the winter and, and spring, but due to increases in temperature. So if that's true, when we're pretty confident it is, uh, another paper just came out this week published by uh, Connie Woodhouse, another professor at the University of Arizona. One of my students was a co-author. Well, she's now a professor. Excellent. You know, you know Reno, Steph but, you know, we, we keep getting more and more evidence uh, that this is, this is a real threat. And the implication for the future is if we let warming continue, this river is going to flow uh, a lot less, a lot less. And that the biggest problem, I think, with everybody working on this is they don't recognize that. So we're doing a good job, I hope, or at least making a big effort to get everyone to recognize this challenge. And I'm impressed with how many people are inviting people like me and Connie and the others who are working on this kind of thing to come and speak to their water resources group or their um, ecological uh, group their, and their communities. People are really interested in this. So I don't think people in the Southwest are looking to stick their head in the sand and ignore it like maybe there's going on in other parts of the country. Well, and I, I think in this way, too, the um, University of Arizona is kind of a leader in some of the technology changes for this. So um, one of the newest thing that's just been um, done here at the U of A is the West Center, which is a center that's um, near where it used to be really stinky there at Prince and Roger Road and that kind of stuff. The county has made a whole new um, wastewater treatment plant over there, and part of that wastewater treatment plant is actually a laboratory. And that laboratory is kind of a joint venture by the um, – College of Agriculture and the College of Engineering and it's a great facility because we can take like any type of wastewater so part of wastewaters from any part of the wastewater treatment plant and develop new technologies that require less energy and things to make potable water or the thing that we're working on mostly now is fit for purpose water so and what I mean by that is you might not need 
totally clean drinking water standard in your cooling tower or you may not for an industrial purpose need it you know purified to x degree so we're trying to really figure out what how much purification do you need to for a particular purpose and then you you know use less energy to make it and you you know can recycle and reuse the water over and over again and things like that for different purposes so we do a lot of reclaim water in tucson already i mean most of our golf courses are reclaimed but the um, the whole rest of the technology for the water, I mean, we're really like, there's a lot of water people here that are doing a lot of good science and research. One of my, the two that, of course, come to me are uh, Shane Snyder, who has worked in Nevada for a long time. And he's one of the people at the West Center. And then, of course, Ian Pepper's done a lot of this as well. So there's just a uh, array of scientists really trying to figure out and engineers how to get this to work for us. So if we have to go toilet to tap, we're all we'll all be okay. That's right. Although as a relative newcomer to the Southwest, I got here ten years ago. I was stunned to find out that how you know our golf courses bring in all kinds of money from our tourism industry, et cetera, and they don't use drinking water on them. They use basically recycled water, and so we have this huge. A no, lot of them do. A lot of them do. A lot of them have uh, grandfathered well rights, and so they're pumping groundwater. Some are and some aren't, yeah. But there is reason. The more we could encourage that, I I found that fascinating because I was like, so, you know, the big water users in, you know, in Arizona are ag for the most part. Of course, yeah. And they use drinking water, of course, because you'll then eat the stuff that that they're making. But if you can get golf courses and other sort of people-type uses to be gray water, then essentially it's not impacting our total, you know, sort of, here's recycled water. We didn't have to pump it again. We didn't have to, you know, pull it out of the Colorado River. How fantastic is that? Yeah, there's a lot of really cool initiatives around the state to try to I mean we are like the test bed for this right I mean everything's happening in Arizona before it's happening someplace else so it's um for better or worse I mean it's a great place to study it and there's quite a few um Joaquin said we were in the here. bullseye we're in the bullseye yeah <laughs> we're in the bullseye it. <laughs> but this is a, you know why University of Arizona is doing what you're saying and we're doing a whole lot more we could spend days talking about it in order to develop the technologies to deal with these challenges and if we do, these will be um, things that people, knowledge and, and technology, that people will want to buy around the world. Well, and so the other thing that's really cool here, though, too, is that both our, our county wastewater people and our power companies, TEP and stuff, they're like partners. You know, and I don't know if, um, and they're kind of partners through us. I don't know how much they talk to each other, but they definitely are partners through the U of A. And that is great. I mean, because you can just, you know, you can get what you need out of to do your research with the power company. So you can test something at scale with the um, wastewater treatment water people. That's just really cool. The support that we get from the local utilities is fabulous. Terrific. So let me, let me because you are the, uh, our token engineer, uh, what about, I mean, as, as somebody that hasn't really paid a whole lot of attention about really mass balance of water and how much water is and how, for how long, all these questions that are critically important, I just sort of have decided on my own that a, a solution that has to be there is desal, that we're going to have to do that, period. I can't imagine that I'm wrong, but I probably am. So what about desal? So there's there's mixtures. There will be more desal. I um I'm sure, as especially in California and stuff. And the technology for that is coming um, down in price. Um, the, if you're going to build a new desal plant, it just works so much better than the ones that are kind of shut down in Yuma or whatever, or on and off or whatever that place is doing there in Yuma. So it's on and off. But um, 
we're um, at the U of A. We're developing cool technologies where we have like um, solar power diesel off the grid, and we actually are testing one of these units. Um, this is uh, Bob Arnold and um, Ardith uh, Barnhart are testing a unit that's up in the Navajo, where we actually take brackish water there, and using just the sun, we purify it for drinking water for them. So that's kind of cool. So if we can develop more of these, you know, localized solutions um, for water to avoid um, how much pumping we have to do, you have to realize that we spend a we waste a lot of power pumping water from, you know, the Colorado over to us. So anything we can do to um, recycle and reuse where we are um, and avoid all that pumping of stuff, then we're, we're just so much better. And desal, again, is part of the solution. It's just like climate change. There's not a silver bullet. This is going to be it, and that's going to be the, you know, at least I, I like to think LG is. But anyways, there's going to be lots of, you know, different things. The same thing with water, right? You're going to use D, more desal here. You're going to change your brackish here. You're going to reuse more of this for industrial here. And, you know, and, and even, you know, better farming practices with drip irrigation and that kind of stuff there. You know, so there's a lot of different solutions. But if you come back in 30 years, uh, we will probably net zero water here in most of our cities in the Southwest, meaning there'll be a little amount of new water coming in constantly, say from the Colorado, but we will not, we'll be reusing the water so well that we won't need to have the big sources of, of fresh new water. Um, and the other thing is our energy will all be renewable, all of it. And that's a transition we're going through now. And it, the signs are pretty darn clear. And you know, there's still some politicals and special interests out there who want to slow this transition down so they can, you know, get the money they, uh, the profits they have enjoyed in the past. But I think the, the world is leaving that behind. So you, so net zero and water. Yeah, you know, I'm finding that when I go around and talk to water managers, uh, you know, there, there are a couple things that are talked about um, often behind closed doors. One of them is the desalinization or desal, and particularly in Mexico. Uh, the California coast is pretty much uh, everyone thinks it's kind of getting off limits for more desal because it's it, already it, is that because of the ecological consequences? Ecological, and it's already so packed already. Uh -huh. I mean, there's not a lot of places left. I see. Um, whereas maybe the Gulf of California could be a place to do some desal, and that could um, essentially free up the Colorado River water that we send to Mexico if we, for example, in the U.S., paid for the desal down there giving them a more reliable water source because it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be affected by the vagaries of the climate. It would just be pumping away. But we got to figure out the energy solution on that or else it becomes a, a it, it isn't a net win. Um, so that's the one thing they're talking about. And the other thing is let's try and get as close to net zero as we can in the, in the communities. Um, of course, a lot of the water has already been said, uh, most of the water goes to agriculture. So another big conversation we're all having is how to best uh, maintain our strong cultural and economically uh, important agricultural community. I've always thought that uh, greenhouses have to be a solution there with hydroponics because you can recycle the water way better than just dumping it down. That's what you do when you're making algae. Well, Gene Giacomelli would certainly agree with you, because yeah. since they have that big research area there, um, you get a lot of productivity per acre in a greenhouse. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you don't have the, you're not usually going to lose your lose your crop, you know, for, uh, because of a weather event or whatever, but they do get infected. You have to be a little bit careful for, 
um, if you do get some pest or some something that you know eat your tomatoes or whatever it can whip through a greenhouse in an afternoon so there's you know always pluses and minuses but yeah the greenhouse facility we have here on campus or they call it controlled environmental agriculture center um, is great you know they do all kinds of things they're tomatoes I try to steal them as much as possible they're quite tasty because water reductions in California we all heard about the backlash because the cuts were to the municipal use, people's lawns, where they live, and that's where all the money is. That's where all the GDP, 98% of the GDP of California is the people, and the ag is 2% or 3%, something like that, of their total GDP, and uh, that 80% of the water was was agriculture. So how does that work? You ask people to give up their lawns and their flower boxes and their swimming pools and their the way that they live, and yet they're the ones who drive the economy of California. And you give it all to agriculture, who then says, we don't want any stinking cuts, you know, and you think, well, where's all that food going? Is, you know, how, how is that an equitable distribution of the, the change? And I, I wonder, how are we going to manage those sorts of things here? You know, if we end up with a big Colorado River shortage that that then drives this, are we going to then ask all of the municipalities like Tucson, who's down what we use the same amount of water now that we did in 1993 with half the population or something crazy? Didn't I see a statistic? We're getting much more efficient in our use of water. But so are the farmers. I mean, and it's not like the farmers are, are just stepping back and saying we're not part of the solution. They're trying, they're trying very hard to find ways to irrigate and do their job with less water. Um, and they're also allowing fields to go fallow in exchange for the you know, um, resources, money, from municipal areas. But I'm um, an oceanographer. The math doesn't make sense to me. Why would we expect you know, some small fraction of our total GDP to get the, the lion's share of the water? Well, a lot of it uh, goes back eat. to historical, what, what, what you brought up earlier, Joaquin, historical water rights issues, legal issues. I mean, that the agricultural uh, sector has uh, fairly strong uh, control over a lot of those water rights, especially in California, Arizona. And so there's there, there's room for a legal scholar at this in this discussion too, because I'm sure that's part of the solution. But uh, some of us have been arguing. We we were hoping, for instance, that with this latest El Nino, that uh, some of the natural um, opportunities that the climate system gives us to relax the pressures on the water a little bit would provide opportunities to not only restructure legal uh, agreements with, without the pressure of a, of a water crisis staring us in the face. Uh, but improve our ability to store water and to and to deal with uh, sort of the uh, the vagaries of the of the climate system and, and how it delivers the water. But um, yeah, you, you know, there are always uh, negotiations going on in water. There always have know. been, and there always are. And the agricultural sector, the growers are at these uh, at the table in these, and they're part of. They'll be part of the solution as everyone else will have to be. Um, but we, they do have senior rights in many cases to all the cities, and they also uh, produce the food that we need to eat. And you got to start factoring in if we're not going to produce the food in the Southwest, where are we going to, where are we going to produce it? And you know what's it going to cost to get it here? So you know, and factor in most of the vegetables and lettuce and things like that in the winter are coming from our part of the world for the whole United States. It's either that or we we ship it in from the southern hemisphere, and that might not be such a great idea. So the whole idea here is to find solutions. And in the interactions I've had with the uh, growing grower-producer community is they're eager to be 
part of the discussion and find solutions. Well, and some of the precision agriculture is very cool. I mean, they can actually, you know, look at a field and decide, okay, well, only this part of it now needs a little extra water and this part doesn't. And, you know, so they're making all these really cool things. Sounds like water should be a lecture series uh, theme. <laughs> yeah, it would be good. Yeah, yeah we can have a, one of our legal scholars, Robert Glennon, come <laughs> in. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, you know, there are all these tidbits you hear about water. It's, it's sort of like uh, transportation and, and uh, the carbon footprint. There's a water fo- footprint, right? So you have all these people that have cattle in the, where there's very little water. And so anytime we export beef, we're exporting water from some of our more sensitive water places in the country. And pecans. And yeah, it's very interesting. So pecans aren't so bad, but uh, the beef for sure is heavily water intensive and carbon intensive, you know to produce that beef whenever you're eating it. And I do eat it. I was going to say, I like steak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, same with lettuce. I mean, I was going to say. It's equal I, opportunity it, for vegetarians <laughs> or for steak. But see, you know, I think a big part of this is, you know, there are going to be places where people have to make uh, compromises and how they've always done the business. And, you know, we're moving ahead. You're not going to just say, I'm going to always do it the way I used to do it, my grandfather used to do it. I think everyone recognizes that. Um, but we have to... Be nimble and think ahead. We have to be nimble and think ahead. We have to, but we also should do it in a way that doesn't compromise what we value in life, you know, because we don't have to. And there are people who like to say, oh, we'll have to give up our cars and this and that. It's a bunch of bunk. And, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too if we do this right. And it's because there are researchers at University of Arizona and other places around the world who are coming up with fabulous new ideas at an ever-increasing clip. You know, that's the value of having these research universities. You know, we're going to solve these problems. And it's not like we're going to. We already are, you know. So uh, we have four minutes, and I think we have six of you so you all have a chunk of time before we, we say goodbye to, to the public that uh, so much appreciates what we do here with these lecture series. So what would you be your, uh, uh, Russell, what would be your advice to our community of how they, indiv- people individually can, can help in global climate change? Uh, do you have any advice? Well, I, I, I think um, we probably all look at our lives and figure out, uh, you know, uh, what's good and what's bad in terms of, of, of how we uh, promote uh, impacts on the environment or, or, or reduce impacts on the environment. Um, and and it, collectively, that all adds up. So, uh, I, you know, you look at, you sort of do a case study on two communities. I look at, I look at Tucson, and, and I'm sort of a neophyte here, too. I've only been here five years, but... Uh, last weekend, uh, my wife and I went up to Phoenix and drove a, a bit around there. And there's completely different looks between Phoenix and Tucson in terms of how people have decided to um, to landscape their own properties, to live on uh, larger properties that are landscaped and, and use resources differently. Uh, I think Tucson tends to have a much more frugal approach to, to using water, for instance, uh, than Phoenix. And so you can look at those two uh, uh, sort of examples as a case study and say, well, there's decisions that can be made uh, differently to improve our, our, our use of resources. Um, 
but you know we're in a we're in a political election year now too, and I think I think it's really important to sort of look at candidates and see how they're speaking about the future and and natural resources in the future, and every vote ultimately does count, and um, so there's there's decisions people can make in in that realm too. Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so uh, how about you, Kim? Um. I think I'm just really impressed that a lot of people are trying to get better educated about these types of issues and about technologies. And I think, you know, the more that, you know, we can do these lecture series and that, you know, we can educate the public and get them involved um, and that they, you know, have a thirst for knowledge for things, then we'll move forward, right? Because when if you have the right information that's there, then everybody can make informed decisions and maybe not be so afraid of new technologies and things like that because we'll figure it out. You, you had a great uh, graph that showed uh, uh, the the source of CO two for the atmosphere, and and you had you, you had industry and you also had I think agriculture, but but I've seen other graphs that just basically sort of divide the CO two that is in the atmosphere is about fifty percent transportation and fifty percent electrical uh, generation. So I would argue that uh, we should think about it that way, right? We should find ways that we. Uh, use less transportation individually and ways that we use less electricity, which absolutely, which can just absolutely. be or use more um, uh, alternative energy, right? Right. That doesn't need the CO two or produce right. it. Right. Okay, we have two minutes. Um, so I guess I can say that I think that one of the main things that people should do is is talk to others. Um, you know, as Kim was saying, I think people are getting more educated, but don't keep that education to yourself. Pass it to your neighbor, pass it to your friend, get a get a conversation going. I really have seen that growing over the past several years, that it seems like this is something people are excited about talking about. It's of interest. And I think making sure that you keep this conversation going will will keep this moving forward in, in all markets as well. Joellen. I want to talk to all the young people, or at least their parents and grandparents, whoever's listening, because uh, keep up with your math. Keep up with your science. Make sure you look, you don't have to get an A, a B will do, a C in a pinch, but but stick with it because we need you. We need the reinforcements. We need you to come on and become the next generation of great scientists who are going to tackle and solve these problems. So come on in. The water's fine. We can't wait to see you. Peck, you get the last word. You always uh, seem to get the last uh, word. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you know, uh, the series was wonderful. And if you haven't seen them, all the lectures, you should sit down and watch them when you have time. Uh, one of the things I highlighted in my presentation at the end was how a strong majority of Arizonans uh, believe climate change is occurring, that humans are, are driving it, and that the government should do something about it. And that, to me, is a very optimistic uh, uh, fact. And not only can we uh, deal with our challenge, which is probably bigger than just about any place in the United States outside of southern Florida, not only can we deal with that if we if we build out renewable energy, that's a big economic driver for our state. And I think it, our state could really use um, a real economic boost. And this is one way to get it, at, while at the same time we're, we're solving our, our biggest threat for the future. That's all the time we have. You have been listening to a special presentation of Arizona Science featuring speakers from the 2016 University of Arizona College of Science lecture series, Earth Transformed. I'd like to thank my colleagues from the University of Arizona in Tucson, Joellen Russell, Russell Monson, Casey Ernst, Kim Ogden, and Jonathan Overpeck. And I'm Joaquin Ruiz, Dean of the University of Arizona College of Science. Thank you very much for listening.